internally for me, it has been important to counter negative thoughts with like tangible facts that I know about the work I've done, both at being so far at Tuck and in my previous career, and then also engage people who are helpful in creating good habits externally and dealing with coworkers and supervisors. I think getting at a human connection really, really can help in dealing with imposter syndrome, both for yourself and in helping other people overcome it. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is episode number 120, kind of amazing and something I'm proud of and really happy to be able to bring to you. It's also the fourth of six episodes of my mini series, As It Happens, where I talk to the same person two or three times while they're going through a significant transition or change in their lives or their careers or their jobs. And we kind of check in and see you know, how things are going and what they're learning along the way and get kind of this insight in real time to what's going on. In this episode, I'm talking to Catherine Keene, who is a former student of mine. And I want to set this up by asking you a question. Do you know what imposter syndrome is? Imposter syndrome. This came up in a blog post. I had my students last year during COVID when I was teaching only on Zoom. I had them do a bunch of blog posts as well to keep them engaged and also give them a chance to be creative. One of the prompts was, what are you worried about as you wrap up these students, almost all of them were about to graduate from business school. And so what's your biggest concern as you graduate in summer of 2021? And it was kind of amazing how often imposter syndrome came up, especially from minority students and from women. Imposter syndrome is the belief that you don't deserve your success, the belief that you don't deserve that seat at the table, the belief that you're faking it, that you're really not as good as other people seem to think you are. It's not just a little bit of self-doubt, which is normal for most of us, but the self-doubt kind of takes hold. It starts to take over and it could be debilitating because you can't function, you can't work, you can't operate, and it could destroy careers. It's like a voice in the back of your head that says, you don't belong. You don't deserve to be here. Who are you to be talking to all these smart people around you? You're really a faker. It's a dangerous thing. It's quite sad, but interesting in an intellectual sense that it's so often mentioned by minority students or by minorities in general and by women. One of the most thoughtful of all these blog posts and most honest, I'm going to say, commentaries came from my guest today on this episode of the Sidcast, Catherine Keene. And that's why I wanted to bring her on because she graduated. She's just starting a great kind of high power job. And how do you deal with it in real time? When you're this articulate, smart, capable person, all of you, as you listen to my conversation with Catherine, you're probably going to find it hard to believe that this woman feels any imposter syndrome, that this woman feels like she doesn't deserve to be there, that she's not good enough. It's going to blow your mind. It's really hard to imagine. But the fact that it could happen and does happen to so many talented people makes this really, really important. It's also a pretty big story when you start to think about it in the context of, you know, Silicon Valley's famous fake it till you make it which is all about making sure you demonstrate no vulnerability. The net result has been, we're starting to see more conversations about this. The mental health of entrepreneurs has really become a big issue. 
because of the pressure, because of the intensity, because of the amount of money that's on the line, and because you can't admit any type of weakness. I mean, as I said, it's amazing that some of my students feel this so viscerally, so deeply, that it affects their mental health, their happiness. And I know that if they let it get to them and dominate them, their career opportunities, their happiness, their lives are going to suffer a lot. So I wanted to ask Catherine to join me on this episode of the SIDCast to talk about imposter syndrome, especially because, again, this woman was just graduating from a top business school and starting a job at a company that, by the way, is near the top of the list of most desired jobs for graduating MBAs, Bain and Company, the consulting firm. I can imagine some of you might think it's incredible that someone whose career is taking off in this way could struggle with imposter syndrome, but it's true. It's way more common than people think, which means it's probably a good idea to try to learn more about it, to be alert to how it might manifest in ourselves, in our children, our colleagues, our new hires. I have two segments for you on this episode. In the first, you'll meet Catherine Keene. You'll hear about her background, what she thinks about her job, what she thinks about imposter syndrome, and what she hopes she'll be able to accomplish as she makes this transition to post-MBA full-time career. A few months later, we'll check back in to see how she's doing, what she's learning, and how reality and expectations match up. Okay, here is my first conversation with Catherine Keene. Welcome to the SITCAST. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I am here with one of my wonderful students, Catherine Keene. Hi there, Catherine. Hi, Sid. Great to be here. Well, I call you one of my students. You're no longer, you have graduated. Yes, a fresh graduate of the top school. <laughs> How do you feel? It's quite surreal. And I think I'm still in the Hanover area, but some classmates have started leaving, going on to their next steps, new locations. So it's starting to sink in, but it was a wonderful two years here. And I will definitely miss living in the Upper Valley and having this wonderful community, but yeah. excited for the next things to come as well. For sure. So let me ask you, I don't know if it's a hard question or not. But it's about your tough experience. What did you learn? <laughs> now, oh you should goodness. say I could talk for hours and hours on that question. But just if there's one thing that pops in your head from some, could be from a classmate, could be from a class, could be from your own reflection, could be from anything. What would you say? Yeah, that is definitely a tough question. And of course, there are so many class and subject matter related things that I could list off. But something that is top of mind based on our wonderful graduation speaker actually is the importance of people and relationships. And one of the reasons why I came to Tuck was because of the strong community that is formed here. And I think admissions always talks about the immersive nature of the Tuck experience. And I definitely found that to be true because everyone is so invested in their time in the Upper Valley, literally leaving their previous lives to enjoy and learn in this MBA environment. And Really, what will stick with me as I go into the next chapter is the strength and importance of relationships. And whether that's personal relationships or professional relationships, I think cultivating those is definitely top of mind for me. And I'm also thinking about Carly Rosenberg, who was one of the visiting executives I got to work with through the visiting executive program here. She said that one piece of advice she would give to people is to cultivate cross-functional relationships as well. So those are some of the thoughts that are percolating in my mm -hmm. head as you ask that question about what I've learned to talk. That's a very important lesson. That's a lesson for life, not just from school, but it's interesting that school does that. Any big surprises when you reflect back at the two years? You know, everyone has expectations. What's business school like? And obviously COVID happened and that was not planned. So maybe that's the obvious, the obvious one dealing with that. Yeah. But what would you say? You didn't think that was going to happen. Mm, 
Another great question. Well, on the COVID topic, I was pleasantly surprised with how rich the experience still was in spite of the COVID limitations. Mm -hmm. I think relating back to the strength of the community, people were still so invested in having these personal connections throughout our time to whatever degree we could. And I was so impressed with both how much effort the students put into remaining engaged as well as the professors, especially as things became a little more free in terms of how we could gather in collective spaces. And that made such a big difference for me. And I know my classmates as well in terms of the academic experience we could have. And I think I was also surprised at some of the subjects that were interesting to me, like I came from a non-traditional background, hadn't studied much economics or finance, but then great professors really can make any topic interesting. Like I think back to the core curriculum and capital markets, which is a topic that I knew very little about, but Professor Chang did such a great job making that interesting and accessible to students for whom that wouldn't be a subject to which they normally gravitate. Plenty of people listening have no idea what capital markets are. <laughs> What's the quick answer? Well, when you think of stocks and bonds and the way those are traded, that is the essence of capital markets and thinking about different iterations of securities and how those are exchanged in the free market environment. You wrote a paper in my class and it came up also in blog posts that you and others wrote as well during the class about imposter syndrome. And that's what triggered my saying, be great to have you on the podcast to talk about that because it's yeah. a really, really big issue. So what does imposter syndrome mean to you? Yeah, absolutely. So when I think of imposter syndrome, I think of feelings of anxiety, and discomfort related to feeling like you don't belong in a particular environment. And I think it's especially prevalent in high achieving environments like MBA programs where you're surrounded by incredible people. Some of my classmates continue to blow me away with what they have done, what they're going on to do. And it's easy to fall into a pattern of thinking, oh, I don't measure up. I'm not good enough at X, Y, or Z. I will never be good at whatever it may be. And mm -hmm. I think many people suffer from those kinds of thoughts in their work, in school, and in strategic leadership. In that your class that I took, I decided to write my final paper on that because while I think it's very useful to have a way to name those feelings, I also think it's so important to get beyond that and not focus on it just because we have this name for those feelings and because it has been studied for quite a long time at this point. You know, as I listen to you speak, I'm thinking, well, let me a lot of listeners saying she is really articulate and sounds really confident. How could this be? If it's happening to her, <laughs> it's happening to everyone. What do you think about that? <laughs> Thank you so much. First of all, I think throughout my career in a previous life, I was actually a high school biology teacher and had to always hype myself up to be in front of students and try and communicate complicated concepts in as succinct a way as possible. But this question also makes me think of Amy Cuddy and her research around presence. And she talks a lot about things like power posing, but also says, you know, sometimes you have to fake it until you become it rather than fake it till you make it. And that does resonate with me because I have had to work a lot on feeling confident and developing my own communication style and presence. And in her research, she talks about how 
physical changes and what you're doing physiologically in your body can, in fact, influence your confidence. But I think in spite of that, no matter how much you practice, there can always be little seeds of doubt. Mm -hmm. And it just goes to show that everyone presents one thing to the world, but that's not always a reflection of what they're feeling. And I think most people experience ebbs and flows in confidence and stress and anxiety. So I definitely fall into that camp. How does or how has imposter syndrome kind of shown up for you in your own life? Well, I think it. One makes me listen more before I contribute and feedback I've received both pre-tuck and in my summer internship with Bain is that, you know, I should speak up more. I have great ideas. I should get mm-hmm. make my voice heard. But if I am doubting my own ability, that makes me hesitate a little more. And that's definitely something that I want to work on. I think also as a woman, both in academic settings and in professional settings, women have historically been a little quieter than men, especially in male-dominated fields. So that is a stereotype that I want to actively work to counter as well. Right. And I think the research on imposter syndrome suggests that it's definitely more common among women and among minorities, people with less Mm -hmm. overt power in a situation which in a way, it's almost like doubling down on the difficulty. If you're at a power disadvantage, well, that's a disadvantage. But then when you allow, and allow maybe it's not quite the right word because it's such a powerful thing. It's not like you can just flip a switch and it's gone. But when imposter syndrome starts to if not take over, at least have a big influence, you have a double challenge going on. You're making it even more difficult mm-hmm. to kind of bounce back from that. Is this something that you've talked about with classmates over the couple of years in business school or even earlier? Yeah, absolutely. And as you were saying, you know, someone can seem so confident and articulate. People that I've spoken to who I respect and admire so much even fall prey to imposter syndrome as well. And during my summer internship with Bain, in conversations with the women at Bain Group, high up managers and partners also say that they've experienced that. And it's definitely reassuring to know that no one is alone in this. And I think also reinforces the importance of mentorship as a way to help individuals overcome imposter syndrome. Because if you see someone on your desired career path who you know has gone through the same things that you're going through, I think it makes it a lot easier. And also having someone as a sounding board to reflect these feelings to can be so helpful. The whole idea behind imposter syndrome for some people is almost incomprehensible, which is quite interesting. Most of those people will be male, but not all. And to know the fact that we're talking about is great and you're thinking about it and working on it is great, but also it's good for people to hear that, hear it in your own voice. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned your bosses or senior people as well. I think it's actually a lot more widespread than people think. And it's really, I wonder where it comes from. I don't know whether you delved into the research at that level. I mean, at a certain point, it's about a power imbalance. It's about maybe a self-image in, in society in terms of positions and power. But it doesn't seem to be advantageous. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. I'm not seeing any evolutionary advantage. I've had over the years, not everyone has talked about it. I think more recently, people have been more open to talking about that. Uh, and it's good that you have with classmates because that's how you learn and deal with it. But it's been existing in my classroom. I've been teaching 28 years at Dartmouth, at Tuck, and I've seen it, glimpses of it, and sometimes more than glimpses, all that time. And one of the things I used to tell students is that we have a really, really good admissions group 
it's not that no mistake is ever going to be made, but it's really rare. So if mm-hmm. you got a seat here, there's a reason why you have that seat. But that's using a rational argument. Mm-hmm. And this is an emotional issue more than a rational one. So you're about to start this high-powered job consulting one of the top firms in the world. You'll probably be traveling, well, soon enough. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. And you'll be dealing with some high-level clients as well. So what are you thinking about here? How are you going to manage this imposter syndrome? You can't let that get in the way in a job like this. Absolutely. For me personally, imposter syndrome is intimately intertwined with mindset. And when I think of mindset, I automatically go to Carol Dweck's research, which I drew on a lot when I was a teacher and doing my master's education thesis. And I think one thing that I will absolutely try to do is cultivate a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. So treating challenges as opportunities rather than these insurmountable hurdles and thinking, oh, my modeling has lots of room to improve rather than I will never be an Excel genius like some other people I might encounter. Along the lines of that, interrupting negative thought patterns, observing them and changing course rather than letting myself spiral in thoughts, oh, I'm not good enough, I don't belong here, things like that. And I think cultivating habits of doing these things really makes a difference in the long run. And if I can start doing that from day one, once I start in a couple days in the long run, those little things like mindfulness will make a big difference. I like that idea. So there are some techniques that you can use. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether you could share any others that you've read about or used or thought about. I don't think I would describe it as imposter syndrome when I had to deal with various things, especially younger, although that still happens now. But when something is really tough, really difficult, it's going to pass. I used to say that. It's going to pass. I'm going to deal with it. It's going to pass. And then grit your teeth and get through it. Yep. I imagine that that's relevant for imposter syndrome as well, those broader than Mm -hmm. that. But are there any other techniques or approaches that you've used or plan to use to deal with it? What I have incorporated even really short meditation into my daily routines, just taking 10 minutes in the morning just to get myself in the right headspace and sort of clear my mind. I find that that does help a lot, even though it might sound a little woo-woo to some business people. But I think mindfulness is becoming ever more prevalent in the Mm -hmm. mainstream society. I also think at Tuck, Dean Slaughter really emphasized reflection. And I think that is so valuable as well. And even taking a couple minutes at the end of the day to write things down, whether that's just keeping track of what I did or thinking about some things that were challenging for me. I think writing things down is one, a way to get them out of your head and sort of externalize them so that you can think about them in a different way, but also ground things in reality so that you know, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. It's probably temporary and I will probably be able to get over it and Mm -hmm. overcome it, whatever it may be. Yeah, I'm a big believer in the same logic that you're describing. And there's a lot of ways to do that. But one of the things that I've done, particularly when it's a really challenging time, is to write down or just you could talk to your phone as well and it'll write down for you (laughs) Mm -hmm. with only a few errors here and there. What great things happened in that day, even if they're very, very small, even if they're tiny. And sometimes they're not, sometimes they're big. Because sometimes you could feel like you never make any progress. Some of these jobs are really hard. There's so many steps. There's so many things. And you don't want that to happen. There actually is a lot of progress. I actually, when I've done that, I don't know that I went back to look at it, which is kind of weird. 
because I should look at it because here's a victory sheet. But it was just the act of doing it seemed to be enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard things like that framed as, you know, everyone has their to-do list, but it's also good to write down your ta-da list (laughs) to think about the good things that have happened. Oh, that's funny. I didn't quite call it that ta-da list. I love that. Okay, this sounds great. Sounds to me like you got your act together, but the fact that it's someone like you has and openly acknowledging the challenge, I think gives comfort to a lot of others who might not be as articulate in being able to convey that, but they're dealing with it. So now it's June and you're starting work literally in what, three days or four days or whatever it is. So we'll check in after Labor Day some point when you would have been working for uh, three months or so to see how it goes. And what should we be talking about? Of course, we'll talk about how did your game plan work in dealing with imposter syndrome? How did it work? What worked? What didn't? How did you adjust? But what else do you think we should kind of circle back on along the lines of not just imposter syndrome, this series of as that happens in the podcast is about transitions and having listeners almost go through it as close as you can in any event, go through it with people that are on the podcast. Yeah. Well, thinking about starting a new jobs, one thing that's top of mind for me is how the transition from the COVID Zoom environment back to in-person will influence the ramp up period. I'm hoping that we'll be able to have some in-person experiences sooner rather than later. I also am curious for myself to see what building a network look like in this new environment. How does finding a mentor or mentors shake out? Because as I mentioned, I think that's so important in personal development and combating imposter syndrome. And how can I challenge myself to be as engaged as possible, start crafting my career and shaping my story at Bain from day one? Right. That's wise. And crafting the career, this is what we do. And doing it in as mindful a way as possible is a really good idea. On the mentoring point, one of the things that I'm sure you know some of this from class and reading and other things that we've talked about in the SIDCAST is mentoring and sponsoring and the really big difference that exists Yeah, where the sponsor really goes to bat for you and will kind of bang their hand on the proverbial table saying, you know, Catherine deserves this opportunity. You'd be crazy if you didn't give her this as opposed to providing advice. That's, I think, one of the biggest differentiators in uh, fast track careers, especially for women and minorities for that matter, that usually have to work a little bit harder. So how do you find that? How do you develop that? It's not like you can just show up and say, okay, here she is, here he is. You have to kind of earn it. So that'll be really interesting because everyone says find a mentor, have mentors and even have sponsors, but how do you actually go about doing it? And that's what you're going to be doing among other things. So that'll be a great topic to return to. Yeah. All right, Catherine, it's time for you to go to work. Good for you. (laughs) I can't wait. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much. It was fun talking to you. We'll catch up with you in three months or so. Sounds great. Thank you. Interesting. Isn't it so impressive how Catherine is so self-possessed? She understands herself. She has big goals. She's self-aware. She just seems like the type of person is going to make it, doesn't it? I really do think so. In this second and last segment of this episode, which we recorded three and a half months after the first segment that you just listened to, after Catherine had gotten her feet wet at Bain, we debrief. I wanted to know how it was going, like you would too, of course, but also what she was learning, what surprised her, if anything, about work after two years back in school, and of course, how she was dealing with imposter syndrome. And as you'll see, Catherine has a maturity of outlook, which when coupled with a truly learning mindset, means that you just know she's going to move forward. Catherine will probably be embarrassed when she hears me say this on this episode, but despite her generally low-key style, she's a bit like a superhero. How? 
she doesn't seem to let all the bumps in the road get to her. Maybe this is, after all, a positive side effect for people with imposter syndrome, at least as long as it's coupled with self-awareness and with self-honesty. You know you've got this problem, this doubting and questioning thing that comes up, but you know it doesn't bring an accurate reflection of who you are and what you can do. Although you might not be able to completely eliminate it because you know it's there, you can deal with it. When the little voice comes up to create insecurity and doubt, the self-aware person like Catherine knows it for what it is. There it is again. It's not a surprise. It's not going to damage me. It's not going to hurt me. And I'm not going to let that happen. It's almost like maybe you can treat the self-doubt that comes with imposter syndrome as a thing that you could send off to a corner to hang out alone, compartmentalizing it because you're too busy living your life to spend time hanging around with it anymore. Okay, Catherine, back to you. Let's hear what's been happening and let's share how you've been dealing with the challenges that you face both on the job and dealing with your own position and your own perspective on your own career. Segment two, Catherine Keene. Welcome back to the SIDCast. I am here with Catherine Keene for round two. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sid. Great to be back. I'm happy that you are back. We left our audience hanging, like what's going to happen? <laughs> what's it going to be like? <laughs> How are you actually going to talk to anyone? First of all, were you in the office at all during this time? Yes, I have been going into the Bank Boston office, which has been great. Being able to see people face to face, even when we have to wear masks, has made a huge difference. And it's so nice to both meet new people and meet people that I had only met on Zoom now in person. So the rule is you have to wear a mask indoors? In common areas, yes. If it's small groups meeting in smaller offices, you can be unmasked. And in common areas, of course, when you're eating, drinking and all that. <laughs> and does Bain have a requirement to be vaccinated? Yes, they do. Of course, there are exceptions for religious or medical exemptions, but they are implementing testing where those exemptions will apply. Right. Pretty interesting to follow so many companies coming up with their ways of dealing with it. And actually very impressive to see the rate of vaccination going very high for people that are going to lose their jobs if they don't do it. Yeah. Which, as far as I'm concerned, is a good thing. So we're seeing that. Let's start off with how did you get into it in the era of COVID and out of the first few weeks go for you? Yeah, it all started with a week of virtual training where I got to meet some of my consultant cohort who were starting at the same time back in June. And then after that week of training, we had the option of going into the office and it was so exciting. It was almost like that back to school feeling of going back and seeing everyone. And it was also great to be able to meet teams in person. I'm staffed in the private equity group and just started my second due diligence project. There are so many things going on. I mean, you know, graduate from Tuck, going back into the working world was a big transition and has had me doing a lot of reflection during this time, not only on what my first couple months at Bain have looked like and how I want to craft that going forward, but also now that I'm no longer a student, what it means to be back in the workforce and what life outside of school looks like. Yeah, it's funny how it's like two years totally in another world in a true bubble. Absolutely. <laughs> and the good old real world, they care, but they don't care. You got to be great from day one. So what surprised you the most so far in restarting your career and especially in this era? I will say definitely a pleasant surprise is how much support I feel like I have had thus far. 
on the two cases that I've been involved with, both my direct supervisor, the senior manager on the team, partners on the team have been eager to both welcome me from a cultural perspective, but also so understanding of the fact that people come into this job and have to learn a pretty broad skill set in terms of the nitty gritty things like conducting expert interviews, coding surveys, building models to capture an industry or market looks like. And it's been so nice to feel like people understand that there is a steep learning curve and they don't expect people to be perfect from day one, largely because they have been through this process and know what it's like to come in brand new to consulting and have to climb up that learning curve. So that's been a really nice surprise to <laughs> That's been a really nice, I don't know if you want to share a less nice surprise, but is there anything else you want to share? I mean, part of it is about you yourself, right? Not just other people getting back into it. Yeah. As with any job, there will be days where you have to work longer hours. And I sort of knew it was coming, so it wasn't so much a surprise, but learning how to deal with that and making sure that I can still do the things that keep my mental health and wellness up. It's an ongoing challenge, I would say. It's actually really important to keep that front and center because the deeper you go, if it doesn't become part of literally daily practice, it's so easy to lose it and it's very hard to get it back. Yeah, definitely. My experience has been, even if it's just a short period of time, that is your time, it makes a difference. You know, I did a episode with Valeria Allo, who is a Tuck alum of maybe 20 years ago. It was just really fascinating work that she's doing on Latinas and building up uh, skill sets, dealing with all kinds of issues. And she had a pretty high powered career, still does, but she shifted. And she said one of the biggest things she learned is that she had stopped putting herself first. She put right. everyone else first and she got worn out. She even said it was even a breakdown. And it turned out to be one that led to a very exciting place she's at now. But it's another reminder, right, of just Absolutely. making that happen. So you talked about building a network when we talked earlier, and it sounds like that's starting mostly internally. So you're in Boston, and what's it like in the professional community? Are people going out and doing stuff? You have classmates, of course, in Boston that are in completely different types of jobs and probably a pretty big personal network from over the years. What's the story there, and how has that been getting back into that part of your life? Well, in terms of how the professional world is sort of coming back to life as we navigate the whole COVID situation, it does seem like the majority of companies, Bain included, are still prioritizing safety for sure. And for example, Bain has not been rash in its path to back to client travel. I mean, I'm in the private equity group, which traditionally does not do much travel anyway, but they're definitely making sure that everyone feels comfortable both internally and on the client side before travel to client sites resumes. And that seems to be the pattern more or less across a lot of companies from what I've heard from tech classmates in particular. But that said, people are definitely eager to come back to the in-person environment and recognize that a lot of the apprenticeship that happens between the more senior and more junior people, while you can get that in a remote environment, there's something really special about being in person, really working through challenging problems, whiteboarding in real life that is hard to replicate. So I know mm -hmm. I've been excited to be back in person and friends have as well. 
That's actually a big deal because work from home and hybrid arrangements are not going to go away as the threat of COVID kind of lessens over time. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a recognition that you do give up something, but you gain lots of other things. I think this will be a debate and discussion for a long time. I could see a lot of doctoral dissertations on this topic over the next little bit of time. So we talked about one of the things that brought you onto the SIDCAST in the first place that I wanted to talk to you about is imposter syndrome and the way you wrote about it and talked about that. Now you have a bigger job. <laughs> Where's your head at when it comes to dealing with imposter syndrome? Yeah, it's something that I've been, been thinking about as I started this new career. And it definitely is not completely gone, even though I wrote about it for your class and have thought about it, have read different articles about it. I think what it comes down to is a couple different things. One on the internal side for each individual and then externally as you create your place in whatever your work environment is. And internally for me, it has been important to counter negative thoughts with like tangible facts that I know about the work I've done, both at being so far at Tuck and in my previous career. And then also engage people who are helpful in creating good habits around internal self-talk, like seeing a therapist on a regular basis. Externally, in dealing with coworkers and supervisors, I think getting at a human connection really, really can help in dealing with imposter syndrome, both for yourself and in helping other people overcome it. Because the more we can see each other as people rather than just whatever professional facade people put up because there is so much more than just the limited sliver of your personality or your expertise that you can bring to work every day. I think having that human connection can help us be more vulnerable. And with that vulnerability comes expressing where we might need help or what challenges we're facing. That honest communication and connection in my experience thus far, when I've been able to do that, it has been reciprocated by others and breaking down the perceived need to be perfect all the time really mm -hmm. helps combat imposter syndrome because I'll learn that other people have had the same feelings and mm -hmm. they know what it's like to be new in a role and have to learn a lot in the first three, six months, one year of a job. I really appreciate your honesty in talking about this because I know that's going to help a lot of people who are thinking about exactly living exactly the same thing. And I happen to think it's the majority of people, not the minority of people that have this challenge. But I think you also said being open and honest with other people. And that's difficult to do for a lot of people because you're displaying or potentially demonstrating some degree of vulnerability. And the word vulnerability has a lot of synonyms, but one of them is weakness. And nobody wants that. On the other hand, we are, it's all part of our personality anyways. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether you have any tips or suggestions for other people who are listening on how they can kind of crack through that. Because you also alluded to this as well. When you help other people deal with the same issues you're dealing with, that teaching is like one of the best things you could do for yourself, not only for the person you're helping. So how did you get ready for game day to be able to do this? Yeah, well, this all reminds me of one of my favorite classes at Tunk, which is communicating with presence, which I know is definitely a fan favorite among Tuck students. And in that class, we read a book that really emphasized different techniques for developing your leadership presence and the presence with which you communicate in public settings. There was a lot about vulnerability in that book as well. And the message was, usually it does feel like a big risk 
when you're doing it, but like nine times out of 10, the reward will be really great. And Mm -hmm. people both on -on one-on-one basis and when you're addressing a big crowd will relate to you much more if you reveal some of those vulnerabilities, because that really is universal to just being a person, both in your personal life and in your work life. And I would say it can become easier the more you do it. And starting small will help you build up the confidence in being vulnerable so that if you're doing it with a peer first, then that will make it easier to later do it with a mentor or a senior supervisor. Yeah, that is actually really good advice. Starting small, baby steps. Turns out that for really tough things, the way to start is just to start. And it doesn't have to be, you know, great. You just do a little thing. That's one of my coaching tips for writers as well. Some people are naturals, but most people are not. And it's just a blank sheet of paper. You just write something. Who cares if it's good or it's not good? It doesn't actually matter. When you take away the pressure on yourself, it actually becomes a lot easier. So what was the book that you referenced in case anybody wants to look into that? Yes, it is called Leadership Presence by Belinda Halpern and Kathy Nibar. Okay, we will add it to the show notes and the people to take a look if they like. We talked also about getting mentors and not just building relationships, but trying to build a mentoring relationship with others. So the big question is, well, how do you do that? And that's the question I have for you. What have been your early steps in that regard? And of course, you're working in an organization where mentorship is treated very seriously. And there's a Mm -hmm. lot of people on the other side who are already wired that way culturally, if not personally. So you got that. A lot of people don't have that. I think it's still interesting to talk about how you're going about trying to build those mentorship relationships. Like you mentioned, I feel lucky that there's a lot of built-in structural mentorship. For example, all new incoming consultants and really employees of any level are assigned a professional development advisor who is someone who will stay with you throughout your career and delivers your annual and semi-annual reviews. So they have a really good perspective on how you are performing at work, what are your ongoing areas where you're selling and being challenged. So that's one more formal way. And informally, I would say it's still an ongoing process. But what I've learned thus far is the importance of being proactive, which can be difficult, especially at the start of a new job when it feels a little overwhelming, a little bit like drinking from the fire hose with so much new information coming at you as you're starting a new role. But not every conversation you have is going to Mm -hmm. lead to the perfect mentorship relationship. And that's okay. Those people will still be part of your network. But I think it's about setting up coffee chats, getting to know people. In my experience, the people who have been the strongest mentors are people that I have a great connection with on a personal level as well. And it takes time for both people to unravel the different layers of who they are in work and outside of work. I'm still trying to challenge myself to make time for those conversations, even if you mean sending an email to someone that I don't really know, which is a little nerve wracking. But up and down the sort of leadership chain, I am trying to get to know more and more people and sort of trusting that my mentors will emerge as I go through this process. You're in the private equity group. And so what you're really doing is You're creating a mentor deal (laughs) flow for yourself, which is actually a very good approach. If you don't kind of start to build or try to build some of those relationships, it's kind of going to be a random thing that something will just happen out of the blue. But you could be much more proactive about that, which you've been. So I think that's actually good advice. 
So the last thing I want to talk about is you talked about you want to challenge yourself to shape your own story. And that's about your career, of course, but it's also about who you are and people grow in, in different jobs. How do you do such a thing? <laughs> Again, in a proactive way. Are there yeah. any things that you've actually thought about or done that gets you a little bit closer in that regard? Yeah. And again, I feel very lucky that Bain has set up environments in which people can think about just this subject. And mm -hmm. specifically, there was a Women at Bain forum recently over the summer that was all about thriving. And we went through an exercise of basically filling out a slide as consultants do, detailing what our personal thesis is in a way, our aspiration for what we are passionate about and how that kind of plays out in our lives. And then imagining what does me thriving at Bain look like in one year, in five years? Okay. And what does thriving look like in my personal life as well? And how do those things interconnect? And then really who is the team that's gonna support me to get to this thriving state? And what actions can I take now in order to realize this vision that I have for myself. And I'll say like, I don't have a perfect picture of that as of now. So it's something that I want to revisit periodically as that vision becomes clearer and I get to know the job a bit better. But tied to that, I have found myself thinking and having conversations with friends about how now that we are in these jobs that we worked so hard to get post business school, it is a little unnerving to be in a place where we've reached, you know, kind of the steady state of our working lives. And up until this point, I know a lot of people who go to talk are used to being high achievers and always working towards this next big goal. And for me, for a long time, getting a job at a great consulting firm like being was one of those big goals. And now that I'm here, I am thinking like, okay, so what's next? I wonder if there really does have to be a goal in such an immediate sense. And I will also be first say, I think it's so important for people to have something that's driving them forward and a big thing that really gets them passionate. And for me, a big driving force is wanting to create positive environmental change, which might not sound like it's directly linked to the private equity consulting I'm doing right now. But as I'm thinking about this goal-oriented perspective that I've always had in the past, I am reconciling what it means to keep a passion and a driving force in mind while also letting it be okay that there will be periods when you're just present where you are and not running so fast toward the next goal. Like I was saying, I think reflection is so important in that and consistently reevaluating what holistically a happy and fulfilled life looks like for you. And of course, that has implications both in the corporate world and in your personal life. But like we were talking about, having mentors that you can talk to, having friends that you can talk to to help you figure out your own personal answers to these questions, I think is really important along the way. That's very thoughtful. And I think as far as always having another goal, we're kind of wired that way in many ways. And it's okay to have it as long as you don't forget that you're still in the middle of something else. It gets back to mindfulness and being alert to living today and not just living in the future, which is a trick. Well, it sounds like you're off to a great start. I really like how you're thinking about all this, Catherine. <laughs> Thanks. You're very thoughtful about it. I think you have 
a future in helping other people as well. Keep that in mind because you're able to articulate things that a lot of people cannot articulate as clearly, even people considerably older than you are as well. <laughs> Thank you. So there you go. This has been fun. It's been part of As It Happens, and we're learning all about you, Catherine, and how you're adapting and adjusting and thinking. And maybe we'll look for an opportunity to check in in a couple of years and see what's happened and where you're at. But I've enjoyed uh, having you on the SIDCast. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And I would love to connect again down the road. All right, stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.